what I think we need to do is start teaching people actually to you know use things like kind of open source investigation in their own lives not just looking at you know conflicts in Syria and Russian assassinations but looking at issues that affect them directly hi I'm Taylor Owen and this is big tech When most people have downtime at work, they might chat with a colleague or scroll through Twitter. But Elliot Higgins is not most people. Back in 2011, Elliot was stuck in a boring office job. And while his coworkers were on their coffee breaks, Elliot was watching live streams from the Arab Spring. At the time, there were mountains of tweets and photos and videos coming out of the region. And it was often difficult to figure out what was real and what wasn't. Governments and rebel forces would often make claims that directly contradicted each other. Elliot found himself on The Guardian's website, getting into debates with people over the legitimacy of these claims. And he realized that you don't actually need to be on the ground to determine whether something is true or not. You just need an internet connection. Elliot would sift through YouTube videos looking for landmarks, like the name of a shop, and then find the exact location of that shop using Google Earth. From thousands of miles away, he was able to piece things together in a way that journalists on the ground couldn't. These early projects formed the basis for Bellingcat, what has become one of the biggest open-source investigative operations in the world. They've proven that Assad used chemical weapons in Syria, and that the Russians shot down a Ukrainian passenger plane. They've identified alt-right protesters in Charlottesville, and deciphered the identities of Russian assassins. And they often figure this stuff out well before the big intelligence agencies or the media do. Elliot chronicles all of this in his new book, We Are Bellingcat, Global Crime, Online Sleuths, and the Bold Future of News. The thing that really excites me about Elliot's work is that he's pretty optimistic about the internet. He feels this kind of open-source investigation could be part of the answer to the rising tides of disinformation and conspiracy. You don't need to believe everything you see online or trust every established institution. Citizens have the tools and the means to find out the truth for themselves. And that's a pretty empowering idea. Here's my conversation with Elliot Higgins. I want to get into some of the investigations you've done and the the way the organization you've built is is set up and designed and the methods. Um, but I did want to start sort of at an earlier moment when you were transitioning from a nine-to-five job into this kind of more full-time job as a, an investigator um, and a journalist. Um, and it's pretty remarkable. You went from working a nine-to-five job to being profiled in The New Yorker. I mean, that, when you describe that in the book, you sound sort of in awe of that moment of seeing yourself with a New Yorker profile. Um, so can, you, can you talk a little bit about that evolution and, and how that happened? Yeah, so I, I really started doing this because, um, first of all, it's really just about arguing with people on the internet about stuff that was happening in the conflicts in the Libya, kind of arguing back and forth. But 
realizing during that that there is a lot of interesting kind of content that was being generated by that conflict yet no one was really taking it seriously journalists didn't know how to verify it they'd been you know had their hands burnt before on in some other situations where they shared what they thought were kind of legitimate sources from the arab spring but they turned out to be fake sources so um but i realized that the, you know when people were like saying how do you know where this was filmed how, how do you know this is real i realized you could use satellite imagery to figure out exactly where this was being kind of filmed and photographed and that was 2011 then in 2012 i kind of started a blog more because um you know my, my daughter had been born my first child and uh all my other hobbies had gone out of the window i just didn't have time for them so i thought i'll start something where i can kind of you know pick it up and put it down easily if she starts crying or she wants a nappy change or something like that just um, a casual casual hobby you know, yeah so, so i started I, the yeah. uh brown roses blog as i called it which was named after a frank zappa song i liked and was a kind of online pseudonym i'd been using uh kind of in these earlier online arguments so i thought that's what people know me as so i'll, I'll use that made a very like use the first like basic template i came across on um blogspot and and i, I basically just then every day i kind of challenged myself to find something to kind of write about and more and more that became videos coming from the conflict in syria and um that's when the first kind of um you know uh, the really kind of early kind of formation of the kind of open source investigation kind of movement began. And then in early 2013, after a, about a year of blogging, I used those YouTube videos to discover um, basically the Saudi secret arms smuggling operation to the rebels in Syria. And um, I shared that with the New York Times and they published like a front page piece on it and um, mentioned me. And then all of a sudden I was having kind of like First of all, The Guardian came to give me an interview. And then after that was published, I had like CNN coming to my house. And then every day I had like a different news van out parked outside my house. Yeah. I mean, I'm wondering about that period where now you seem very reflective about expertise and it's it's hard to sort of in any way challenge your expertise in this both method and, and spaces. Um, but how did you think about that at the time when you were taking on and in many ways disproving what the so-called experts were saying about these events. Well, it's, um, I, I mean, at first, because this was kind of just like my kind of hobby, I didn't really think mm. of it in kind of any bigger context than just kind of, you know, doing stuff on my blog that would people would talk about on Twitter and that, you know, they'd argue about and then they'd argue with me about it. And uh, it wasn't until I, after the... Um, kind of New York Times piece and all the coverage that followed that. I was invited uh, by a group called uh, the Tactical uh, Technology Collective, who are based in uh, Germany, to attend a, um, a camp in Italy. And it, they they asked me to um, be one of uh, four people who would kind of teach this kind of investigative track to uh, these kind of activists. And I, I was, you know, I was like, well, you know, is it... <laughs> isn't there someone more qualified to do it than me? But I, I kind <laughs> right. of, they're I like, nope, along. you're the guy. <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, why are you asking me? There's better people than me. But what really struck me there was how, um, as I showed them my work, I mean, I had no idea how they'd react. Cause these were like people who were like properly on the front lines of activism, like literally, you know, being shot at by police in their own country because they're, you know, protesting against some 
wrongdoing. And then they were kind of watching me talking about my YouTube videos and stuff like that. And I was a bit worried. They just say, this is nonsense. What are you doing? This is just stupid YouTube videos. We're out on the front lines. But they reacted really positively to it. And um, it made me realize how much kind of they, they, they spoke about the value of this kind of stuff in kind of making the cases that they were trying to make. And I think really with kind of what happened in 2014, once Belling had been launched with the downing of MH17, that then acted as like a really massive catalyst, both for the growth of Bellingcat and the kind of broader online open source investigative kind of movement. Not an accident or a disaster, but an act of terrorism. Those were the words of the Ukrainian president today after a flight with 298 people on board was apparently shot down over his country. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what I want to ask you about. I mean, if it's trying to think of which of the the investigations to ask you to run through. And, and it seems to me that one is just the most stark in the in the sense that you had um, a world leader publicly saying one thing. We've heard from Russia's defense ministry in the last couple of hours reiterating their absolute denial of having anything to do with this attack. They say that no Russian weapons were involved in this. And uh, you disproving that um, to pretty significant global consequence. Um, but I wanted just to give a sense, give people a sense of the methods and the process, if you could walk through that investigation for a few minutes, just to give us a sense of how that came together. So um, on July 14th, 2014, I launched um, Bellingcat along with a Kickstarter campaign to fund it. Um, and then three days later, Malaysian Airlines Flight 17 was shot down over eastern Ukraine, killing 298 people. Um, and that was like just the kind of big story. And it was just because Belling had just been launched. There was a kind of huge amount of information coming from the conflicts in Ukraine, because unlike Syria, where you had, you know, a small number of YouTube channels and social media sites sharing everything from the opposition held areas in Eastern Ukraine, it was like the internet was completely open. So people could post anything they wanted. And some of the things being posted were videos and photographs of a uh, book missile launcher, a surface to air missile launcher that people claimed had been traveling through separatist control territory on the day MH17 was shot down. Um, and people who um, had followed my work for a while started getting in touch saying they found stuff or they made some discovery or I'd see people discussing stuff online. So one example of this is a colleague of mine, um, Eric Toller, who's uh, based in the US and he, he's, uh, he speaks Russian and he had seen what happened and he was kind of digging through material. And he was looking at one photograph that showed this uh, book missile launch on this uh, low loader, this transport vehicle. And um, it was claimed to be in one town, but he figured out it was actually in another town using basically he, there's a shop sign in the back grounds. Um, he googled that and uh, towns in that region of Ukraine and until he found one that actually gave a result with that combination of words. That was a wiki um, someone had set up that listed all the streets in uh, Ukraine along with the shops that were on there. So it had the name of the shop we were looking for and the street it was on. It didn't have the full address, but it gave, we could Google that again and Eric put it into Google and that gave more results. And this time that included um, a court document where there'd been a fight at the shop, which gave the full address of the shop and videos posted online by um, a Ukrainian guy whose hobby was to drive around the streets of eastern Ukraine with his uh, his uh, dashboard camera on, film it and put it online with a list of streets he'd driven down. So that popped up in the search results. We could watch that and then see that um, he actually drove past the location 
where this photograph was taken, the same shop. And because we then had the exact location of the camera, we could also use the shadows that were visible to calculate an approximate time of day. And later on, we would discover, as we kind of formed as a team and started digging through social media posts, we started to discover kind of posts made by people on the day as they saw the missile launcher driving through that same location. And that was kind of, you know, the first few days of what we were doing in what, you know, ended up being a multi-year investigation, but we were able to establish the route of the missile launcher where Russia was busy trying to pump out as much kind of propaganda as possible about what happened. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking back on on that time period and following that event, and my recollection of it is that it was almost binary. Like for a, a, a some type period of time, there was complete denial, and then everybody accepted that it was them. Um, is is that? how it actually played out? Like once you discovered this, there was just universal acceptance of it or was there sort of a, an evolution? I, I, I'm a universal acceptance. I mean, I don't think you ever really have anything like right. universal yeah. acceptance. <laughs> On the internet, internet that, everybody doesn't yeah. agree. <laughs> so, um, I mean, th what actually happened was quite quickly, they kind of formed a kind of counterfactual community around what happened with MH17. Mm. Um, you know, they focused on the conspiracy end of it. And they often were either very pro-Russian voices or people who were kind of, you know, didn't trust anything that they thought was advantageous to the West or the US. Therefore, it must be that Russia is actually the good guy and innocent in this situation. And they've kind of formed their own kind of online community. And you see that with pretty much anything that happens in the world from kind of coronavirus to, you know, QAnon. There's communities that form around kind of, you know, in their old kind of alternative realities. But for the most part, what I, I think our work showed is that, first of all, that, you know, Russia was lying from pretty much day one about what happened. They gave a press conference on July 21st, 2014, just a few days after MH17 was shot down. And they just lied time and time again in this press conference. And we basically exposed those lies systematically. And it's one thing to say, oh, well, you know, Russia's lying about something, but when you can kind of do like a PowerPoint presentation on it, kind of breaking it down step by step using publicly available information, that is powerful. And I think that kind of really helps with our reputation, but also show that, you know, open source investigation is something you can produce usable and checkable results with. Yeah. And kind of fascinating that you could do so iteratively and publicly in a way that was reactive to the Russian government's propaganda on this in a way that official institutions couldn't because they had a formal process of investigation. And so, I mean, that must have <laughs> driven the Russian government crazy. Um, and I'm sure you had Putin's attention through all of that. And I'm, I'm wondering if that, were you concerned about that? And was that frightening knowing that you were under the microscope of the Russian government? It, it was always like an escalation. It, it, it started... Uh, early 2015 when the kind of pro-Russian media, this kind of Sputnik news and Russia Today started doing more, more and more coverage that was critical of myself and Bellingcat. Yeah. Um, and um, citing quite, like I remember they cited a, a report that was called Anti-Bellingcat from some Russian bloggers as they described it. But it turned out these bloggers were actually working for like a Putin-founded think tank. And uh, of course they didn't mention that in their coverage of it. But, and as well, the stuff that was actually in this report was just inaccurate and just just complete garbage. It was it was like really badly written, and they were citing it. And I, I think they couldn't understand what Bellingcat was because 
we, as far as they saw, I think we came from nowhere and we were suddenly kind of exposing all this kind of stuff Russia was doing. So yeah. they looked at all the other crazy bloggers who were kind of out there mm. and um, were wondering why we were getting cited and all these other kind of bloggers weren't because they mm. didn't really understand what we were. Um, but that escalated then to kind of like the Russian foreign ministry, you know, denouncing us, saying that we were amateurs and we were using fakes. In that case, I actually wrote to the Russian foreign ministry and asked them if they could provide the evidence we were using fake um, material and they actually sent us as a reply eight pages of plagiarized blog posts um, that they stolen off the internet and um, we figured out they had basically just copied and pasted just lines from this blog post and they were the foreign ministry using some live <laughs> journal to counter us um, but then you know we were targeted um, in the same hacking campaign that targeted uh, kind of the Podesta emails that resulted in you know drama around the 2016 election campaign yeah. um, we um, were you know had more disinformation about us I was targeted by like a big kind of troll factory campaign trying to attack me it's like in one day there was like 50 articles about me appeared online it's just been yeah. continual and we of course now we've done stuff you know looking at russian assassins where you know I've, i get visits from the police every so often just to kind of check in and make sure that you know i've not been assassinated yet <laughs> give me advice Jeez. about yeah you know probably want to you know make sure your doors are locked and stuff like that um this this disconnect between the the process and what the official intelligence agencies know and their process versus what you are able to discover and do just seems to get increasingly stark. I mean, it was, and I was just listening to a podcast interview with between the um, director of science and technology for the CIA. Um, and she was saying that they are confident that they are state of the art when it comes to the use of online investigation tools. How, how do you respond to that, her comment there? And do you, how do you view these much more official intelligence gathering operations? I, I think so. Often there's such a focus on tools, but really I think what makes Ballincat so effective is the kind of community that's around us rather than the tools that we use. I mean, sure, we need the tools to do, you know, we need a Google search and Google Earth and stuff like that. But the fact that we can kind of ask a question to, you know, all our followers on Twitter allows us often to find answers that we kind of, you know, wouldn't be able to find ourselves. I mean, for example, when we were looking into, um, there was a, we looked into the attempted assassination of Alexei Navalny um, in Russia, discovered that there was an FSB team who had been following him 40 times, including the time he was poisoned. So we looked into this FSB team. We were able to get their travel records because Russia is an, an amazingly leaky bureaucracy where you can you know, buy anything, basically. So we got their travel records, their phone records, and we discovered that they were following not just um, Navalny, but other people too. So we actually put out to our kind of followers on Twitter um, basically a list of their travels of these FSB team members and asked if any of them could see that they had synced up with any other kind of mysterious deaths. And because we kind of crowdsourced that e effort, that actually led us to free assassinations we wouldn't have been able to find otherwise because they were kind of very low-profile kind of local um, kind of issues. Um, and that's just amplifying something to a large audience. Now, if you're an intelligence service, obviously that's a lot more difficult to do. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, mm. so it's really now uh, what we're doing with Bellingcat is kind of developing kind of more ways to volunteers to kind of get involved with the investigation. So we're building like a volunteer section, showing kind of more and more ways for people to learn how to do this themselves and building a bigger and bigger community. It, it seems that you sit adjacent to a certain degree to these intelligence agencies, but you 
The other institution you are adjacent to and a part of to some degree is is journalistic ones. And when when the Syria conflict was happening and you were developing your methods and work there, um, I was working at the, the Columbia Journalism School. And I remember a lot of conversations at the time about what you were doing, um, but also about how they were embedded in these changes happening in journalism. And one moment that remains really stark, I, I actually wrote about it in, in a book years ago, was um, Mary Colvin being killed in Holmes, which you reference in your book as well. It seems to me the journalism discussion at the time was about witnessing, was about there being all these cell phones all of a sudden able to bear witness um, and kind of juxtaposing that against what Mary Colvin and physical journalists were doing there. Um, and their role in bearing witness. But it, in, in reading your work, it seems to me you're going a step further and saying this isn't just using these YouTube videos or these live streams or whatever it might be to bear witness and to see what happened, but to actually understand what happened. I mean, I think now with Ballincat, we kind of almost see ourselves as an interface between, you know, the person on the ground who's filming these things. You know, they film it because they want there to be accountability. It's not just raising awareness of it. It's not just about getting onto a blog or a website or a news channel. It's about them wanting there to, you know, you don't film someone being killed because, you know, you don't want anything to happen because of it. So we, now a lot of our focus is not just on kind of doing the kind of analysis, but also how you seek accountability, um, you know, for this kind of work. So... For example, we've been um, doing a lot of work in the last couple of years looking at Saudi airstrikes in Yemen, using our experience from the conflict in Syria to develop a new process for investigating incidents that are happening in conflict zones, applying it to Saudi airstrikes in Yemen, and looking at how that could be used um, as a kind of package in a way, an investigative package for courts. Um, and we've we've been testing that in mock trials, and um, that's been quite successful so far. Um, we were surprised that the first time we did it, the judge kind of accepted our evidence. I, I think it's important that we kind of develop these skills and give them to other organizations who are able to do this in different regions of the world. We're still a small organization. We have, you know, 20 staff members. We, you know, are you know, pumping out as much as we can, but there's a lot of, you know, conflicts going on in the world. There's a lot of material being gathered. And I know there's stuff that is being missed out there just because there's not enough people to look at it and do that analysis. For example, a, a year or two ago, we were looking at a, a video with the BBC and Amnesty International and others that came from um, Cameroon that showed executions at a roadside. And this had just kind of popped up on Twitter. And it's two young women and two children who were marched off the road and executed by soldiers. We started looking into that and um, we did publish a bit on it and Cameroon, uh, the government, basically called it fake news. I mean, they literally called it fake news and denied the video was re real. Um, so that was like a kind of red rag to a bull for us. And then we just kept doing it. And within about a year, all those soldiers were convicted for murder in a Cameroonian court. So that only happened because we chanced across a this video on Twitter and we just happened to have enough capacity as a group to look into it and spend time looking into it. Had it not been for that, that those you know women and those children would have been kind of, you know, not found any accountability for what happened to them whatsoever. And, you know, those soldiers would still be free and they'd still be able to, you know, execute people that they didn't like the look of. I mean, on a slightly different front, one of the, one of the things that really jumped out to me with your work is, um, how we're defining open source data and what sort of data you you seek to use or are willing to use. And and a lot of the examples involve 
truly open data around map data or open tools or public profiles of people. But it, it struck me in your investigation of uh, the poisoning of Russian exile, Sergei Skripal. The poisoning of former Russian intelligence officer Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia follows several mysterious deaths of Russians in Britain. But you kind of moved beyond those more open data sources. Um, and it sounded like you downloaded some leaked Russian databases that probably had a bunch of personal private information in them. And I'm, can, was that a an ethical debate you had internally about whether what data you would and wouldn't use in these investigations? And is that something you think a lot about? Yeah, it's, it's something we have a lot of discussions about. Um, the thing to understand about Russia is that it is... It's basically an extremely corrupt police state where everyone at every level is trying to make money. And part of that includes people selling access to um, government and police databases. And this has been going on for years and years. You could go to like a market in Russia 10 years ago and pick up a DVD with, uh, you know, Moscow residency database burnt onto it. And people would use this kind of information for all kinds of things, you know, fraud, looking up what they're kind of, who their husband's been calling, you know, all kinds of different things. But it was quite a vibrant market. You know, you could, if you wanted someone's passport details or their phone records or anything that the government had, you could get. Um, and my colleague Christo Grozev, he had been looking into kind of this, these kind of Russian spy activities for a while. But with the Skripal case, we started looking into this. And when the identities of the Skripal suspects were published by the UK authorities, we kind of looked up their names, looked up their faces, and they just didn't really exist on the internet, which was odd seeing they were supposed to be like salesmen. So that was a bit strange. And then um, a Russian newspaper got their passports uh, or their um, flight details, including their passport numbers and their date of births. And that gave us a lot more to go with. That allowed us to find their entries on like Russian government databases of uh, residencies in Moscow. And what was interesting there is they existed in 2013, but they didn't exist in 2012. So it was clear that in 2013, these identities had been added to databases. Um, so um, that made us even more suspicious. And Christo then realized that he, there was, you can basically go on, you know, you find the right internet, kind of a Russian website and you'll find someone on there saying, oh, I can buy, buy, get this for you. So Christo got their two guys like passport registration forms. And that turned out that they were actually um, had very odd markings on those forms. It had the phone number of the Russian Ministry of Defense, a stamp that seemed to indicate it was Secret Service related. It was like all like really dodgy stuff on there. So that made us even more interested. And then kind of, we, we did have a discussion like we're buying data and it's mm. not, you know, traditionally open source information, um, but it's the only way to actually find out who these people are. And we thought, well, you know, we'll give it a go. It probably won't work. I mean, after all, they are spies for one of the, you know, most notorious spying countries in the world. They probably have hidden this stuff quite well. Turns out they didn't hide it quite well. They were like doing really dumb stuff like their fake identities often have the same first name, place of birth, and date of birth. That mm. means if you have someone's fake identities and you have those two pieces of information, like you get off their passports, you're able to search for um, people who are have matching attributes on these leaked databases. So yeah. we'd find everyone with the same first name, date of birth, and place of birth, and that would find us more and more spies. Uh, on, on, the, on the data side, I mean, I was, uh, I was at a workshop years ago where someone from Facebook was doing a, a demo of their the graph search that they were about to launch. And uh, I was struck by you highlighting 
how valuable that tool was to you. Um, and of, of course it would be. Um, at this event, though, that was kind of filled with privacy scholars and tech and society people, um, people were kind of shocked by this thing, that this would even be considered to be made public. Um, and it, it strikes me these kinds of open source investigations have a real tension with privacy concerns. Um, the more data out there, the better for you, right? Um, how, how, do you, how do you square those two <laughs> values, I guess? It, it's, um, it's one of the paradoxes of our work. We want every, every bit of data we can get our hands on, but at the same <laughs> time, we want people to be very kind of protective and safe of their data. <laughs> yeah, if the yeah. bad guys can be clumsy and everyone else can be safe, that would be the ideal scenario. But unfortunately, we yeah. don't live in a perfect world. But yeah, yeah, I mean, Graph Search was an incredible tool for research, and I can understand why they got rid of it after the Cambridge Analytica stuff, because uh, there's plenty of other things you can do with it as well. But um I mean, there are just, you know, a recent tool that was very useful in our research were um, sites that started appearing in Russia that um, basically they downloaded um, all the images from Vcontacte, which is like Russia's answer to Facebook. Loads of Russians use it. They'd been downloading all the photographs from it and then using facial recognition on that. So you could basically reverse search any Russian and have a really high chance of finding their photograph on this kind of search engine and then finding their social media profile. It was fantastic and it is fantastic. There's still some other services that do it, but it was also being um, abused by people to basically um, track down uh, women who had been um, appearing in adult films and then harass them um, by finding their social media profiles. But we were using it to find like Russian spies and soldiers and, you know, people fighting in Ukraine when they should have, shouldn't be and all kinds of stuff like that. But it's like any tool, you know, there's potential for abuse um, and I, it, it's, it is difficult because, you know, we don't want, you know, innocent people to be affected by this, but at the same time, you know, th these tools can be very useful for revealing all sorts of like really serious stuff that's happening in the world. You know, we've uncovered kind of war crimes and assassinations, you know, using these tools. So there is value there. Yeah. yeah. Over the, over the course of the time you've been doing this work, the other thing that's really emerged quite clearly is how these spaces can be used for false information and dis and misinformation. Um, and, and I'm wondering how you see the sort of your search for facts in this ecosystem and promoting facts versus bumping up against just this flood of false and misinformation. Um, and do you think there, one can counter the other or? I mean, for me, it comes down to how people, you know, society is really, change in a very radical way really thanks to the wonders of the internet you know if you were someone you know who had lost faith in traditional sources of authority for whatever reason pre-internet there weren't many places you could go because you know you would know people in your social circle and um unless you put in a huge amount of effort to find you know whoever also believed the earth was flat or whoever it may be you'd have difficulty doing that now, though, you can just Google it and you've immediately got access to an entire community that will reinforce whatever beliefs that you have. You, you will be then surrounded by bloggers, experts, doctors who will support these theories and so on and so forth uh, until eventually you know some people are now believing that you know bill gates has put microchips in you know the vaccines and that kind of stuff it's basically a form of rad online radicalization but it happens with any topic under the sun where you can have a kind of lack of faith in authority and um, within those communities you have you know groups of people who um, become really like the standard bearers for those kind of topics they're the kind of noisiest they're the ones who kind of lead the discussions they have their youtube channels and news websites and stuff like 
like that, but they form a kind of separate media ecosystem from the mainstream ecosystem. And in a way, once they've moved into those alternative media ecosystems, these kind of counterfactual communities, you can't really reach them anymore because you tell them they're wrong or you present any amount of evidence you want, they will have plenty of people who will tell them that no, actually they're right. So I think what we have to do is start realizing that this kind of you know, this lack of kind of trust in traditional sources of authority is being addressed by online communities that draw people into basically more kind of radical ways of thinking. And what I think we need to do is start teaching people actually to, you know, use things like kind of open source investigation in their own lives, you know, show them that this is something they can actually do. And they can participate in different ways, not just looking at, you know, conflicts in Syria and Russian assassinations, but looking at issues that affect them directly, you know, looking at issues that are happening, you know, down the end of the road, something like getting freedom of information requests about how many police chases are happening in their local area, and questioning if they're higher or lower than the low, you know, national average it's not you know the biggest story in the world but it matters to those people but it's also very empowering to those people because they then realize that actually as an individual as even a 16 year old you can make a freedom of information request and find out something that wasn't already known and you can empower them through that and also connect them to kind of communities like the communities that we're building with Bellingcat. then that gives them another way to kind of be empowered it allows them to connect with people who are also looking for you know the truth to kind of build and improve things and challenge authority as well when it does stuff that's wrong um and then rather than you know them going off without you know just being mad about something in the world and then finding some community of people who are going to kind of draw them into conspiracy theories they actually are able to find communities that can actually help them positively kind of contribute to these issues and be part of a community where rather than just being angry and screaming at people who disagree with you you say okay what can we do to actually affect change and actually make something happen and if we don't do that i think we're just gonna we can't be surprised if we just see more and more incidents like we saw in you know january 6th in washington dc and you know just weirder and weirder conspiracies appearing online that don't seem to make any sense but hundreds of thousands of people believe it yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's such a fine line <laughs> sometimes between a positive and a negative ra- rabbit hole or one that's filled with misinformation versus one that's factual. I mean, these are the same impetus that drives people to solve some of these mysteries online or the same impetus that drives people, you know, to try and seek comfort in the rationale of the world that might be a conspiracy. Yeah, it's, um, it, it's, it's tough as well because that, that, once you lose people to those conspiracy theories, it's really, really hard to reach them again. And I, I think the problem is no matter of kind of fact checking websites or think tanks writing about bot networks is ever going to kind of really address these issues. I mean, it's, it, it's, I think when there is this focus on, oh, what should the tech platforms be doing? Oh, how can we stop Russia from doing this to us? It completely misses the point. This is something we're doing to ourselves. The internet is connecting us to like-minded people, and some of those like-minded people are just as dumb as we are. And unfortunately, until we start actually thinking, how do we make a healthy uh, civil society? How do we engage people in a different way? How do we actually use the internet for good rather than just thinking it's a thing that exists that we don't have to worry about um, until you know people are burning down you know the Capitol building? Until we start thinking about it as an opportunity and being proactive about taking that opportunity, it's no wonder that we're going to slide more and more into conspiracy and weird ideas on the internet. Well, thanks for all the work you're doing to to counter exactly that. Um, Thank you. And to bring a bit of rationality and fact to our online lives. (laughs) Let's hope so. 
That was my conversation with Elliot Higgins. As always, you can reach me at taylor at bigtechpodcast.com and please subscribe to Big Tech wherever you listen to your podcasts. Big Tech is presented by the Center for International Governance Innovation and produced by Antica Productions. Please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes on Thursdays every other week.